listening to VC Land, a podcast featuring leading VCs and investors who take us through their investment strategies, portfolio companies, what they like to look for in founders, sectors that are hot, what makes them finally invest, strategies for exit, whether companies should stay private or public, and tips and tactics for companies looking to work with VCs. Welcome to VC Land. My guest today on VC Land is Les Zekely, a veteran VC and current chairman at EVP, Equity Venture Partners. Les, welcome to VC Land. Good afternoon, Justin. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, let's begin without wanting to be uh, too indelicate and reveal your age. How long have you been in this investment caper for now? Well... I got involved back in 1999. It was the dot-com bubble. I got very lucky to um, back and be involved with a gentleman who turned out to be one of the greats of the industry, um, a gentleman called Leon Kamenev. He, um, at that time, founded a business called Hotel Club and Mm -hmm. went on and uh, later founded several other businesses, including Menulog, which attracted the right when it was sold for $852 million. <laughs> I still use it. It's a, good, it's a good service and the founder is a really nice guy. Okay, so tell us about the fund that you're involved with now, EVP. Okay, well, having started way back in 1999 um, and we exited uh, what was Hotel Club in those days back in 2004, I just gradually became more and more involved in uh, VC investing. And uh, back in about 2012 or 13, it reached a scale where I couldn't do it anymore myself. There were were too many opportunities. There was too much work. So together with my partner, Howard Liebman, we founded Equity Venture Partners, um, started off doing advisory work and transactional work very briefly. And that quickly uh, morphed into uh, funds management, uh, again, just to take advantage of all the opportunity we were seeing. Okay. And so tell us about, tell us about the fund. Okay. Well, we've got two funds that are functional and, and closed, and we're in the process of raising our third fund. Okay. EVP Fund 3, that, that's a $50 million fund. Uh, unlike most of the well-known or big-name fund managers, our investors are uh, all high-wealth individuals, mm-hmm. so private money, and we, uh, we've developed quite a niche specialisation um, in stats. Uh, we, we invest at Series, uh, series A stage, which in Australia means uh, we typically draw a cheque of between half a million to two, two and a half million yep. uh, on first investment. Um, and then we'll, we'll do follow-on rounds, uh, you know, up to five or eight million dollars um, in fund three. But I think the key to it is, in terms of what we do, we don't take technology risk. We're not technology people; we're business people. Mm. So we only invest in businesses, um, which means that if you want to get in the door with us, you've got to have evidence of sales traction. You must be up and running and have at least a few months, maybe more, 
depends on the circumstances of of trading revenues. Okay, yeah. tell me tell me more about that. Well, the point is, it's it's all about risk and reward and, and getting the the optimal possible return. We've had a lot of success investing at that stage because I think there, as I say, we're not really investing in technology or research. There isn't a risk as to whether a product can be created. There isn't a risk about whether it can be sold. You know it's there, it's up and running. You can talk to some customers and therefore you can validate that it exists, that it works and that some people will pay some money for it. Mm. And then we look for situations where there's enough evidence of traction. We can look at how it's been sold, what it costs to sell, what's the uh, likely size of the addressable market. So really, it is early stage business investing, not pure technology investing or technology investing per se. Yeah, okay. Where, where the technology comes in is that we only invest in startups, which means businesses that are disrupting existing uh, marketplaces, existing ways of doing things, and just about invariably uh, they're doing that with software. So we've made that a real niche for ourselves, developed, I hope, some real expertise in software as a service, especially B2B, business-to-business software, Mm. and also in digital marketplaces and online distribution of various types. And by now, we've got close to 30 companies across my personal investments, and then the portfolios managed by EVP We've got close to 30 companies, and they all fit in one of those two categories. They're all either marketplaces or software as a service, mainly B2B. Now, I presume we've heard some of the businesses. Give us a flavour of um, some of the portfolio companies that you've invested into. Well, probably the most famous one or notorious one is one called SiteMinder, which your listeners may not know because it is business to business, but... I think the way to think of it is it's the plumbing that sits in between a business like Booking.com and all of its competitors. It sits in between those online travel agents where you book your hotel rooms and the hotels who all have their own different computer systems where they carry their inventory of room nights. Yeah, that's right. If I have a 10-room place, that's uh, 3,000 you know, 650 units of inventory that I've got to sell each year. That's mm. the room nights I've got. We provide the plumbing whereby the hotels can connect to the online retailers like Agoda and Hotels.com and Bookings.com. And, uh, yeah, so that business, I became involved with that one back in about 2008 or nine, um, and that uh, officially became a unicorn. Very proud of it. And it's another Australian unicorn. Uh, we closed around uh, in January, just before COVID. Mm. Uh, Probably a good thing. Yeah, a bit of good luck um, at, at a, at a you know, billion dollars pre-money valuation. So dear very idea. proud of that one. And we employ mm. um, north of 700 people in several countries. It's, uh, but that, that's, that's an example of what uh, VC investing can do when you get it right. Not saying they're all like that, but that's been a real good one. And and in in your in the two funds, have you got? I presume you've got a mix of 
of, of really good ones and ones that are, you know, bubbling along okay and others that uh, might not quite make it? I mean, what's, what's, what's the mix? What's the, the, the ratio of success that you're running at? Yeah. Look, I think and you, you, you're implying a good point there that the real world is not like um, Dragon's Den or the popular press where you either yeah, miss the ball altogether or you hit it out of the ballpark. It's not like that. Um, it's a long, hard struggle. I regularly tell founders it takes at least a decade to become an overnight millionaire. <laughs> but, um, yes. yeah, look, we're, we're very happy. Our, our, port- our two existing portfolios in EVP, we've never had a company go under and we've never had a company do a down round. We've had many of them do significant up rounds. Um, so by way of example, uh, one that's currently doing extraordinarily well, compliments of COVID, is a company called Shippet. Yes. What it does is, on, on the one hand, it connects to a lot of people that are sending stuff, so businesses, merchants, retailers in the main, um, that need to get stuff delivered. And on the other hand, it connects to a whole bunch of um, shipping delivery companies. So think uh, Australia Post, TNT, um, Toll, uh, Couriers, Please, yep. all sorts of delivery companies. And what it does, it sits in the middle and automate. it does two things. It automates the delivery process and it optimises um, the delivery process in terms of the the cost and, and efficiency. So mm-hmm. from merchant's point of view, um, consumer with an in-store or hops online and orders yeah, a T-shirt and it's going from Melbourne to Hobart by plugging in Ship It into the shopping cart, yep. Ship it can automatically choose the best carrier at the best price. So it yeah. might be an overnight delivery, it might be a three-day delivery, it might be fragile. You might want to have... Um, Delivery insurance. Um, yes. And it just does that automatically. When I say it does it automatically, at the merchant end, it, it selects the courier, quotes the price, selects the courier, and allows the merchant to print the label and stick it on the on the package, and the courier will come and pick it up. And everything yeah. is being sorted automatically. That makes perfect sense. And I imagine, given that everyone's been working from home and locked down and hasn't been moving, that everyone's been shopping online and as a result, companies like Shippet are really flourishing. Yeah, look, it, it, it is absolutely flying. It's sort of tripled revenues over a 12-month period. And, um, yeah, it's it's now expanding uh, regionally up into Asia, into Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand. Um, so that, that's another really good one. They're, they're, not, they're not all good ones. I don't want to mislead. Uh, yep. COVID's been a double-edged sword. We've got one called Resdi. Again, people won't recognise it because it's business to business. What Resdi does is it handles distribution for tours and activities. So think things like the bridge climb, yes, uh, walking tours, whale watching tours, whole range of stuff. What it does is it allows the um, providers of those tours and activities to automate their uh, reservation and, and payment and booking process. Mm. Uh, that industry, it's similar to hotels, but years behind, and RISD is helping it catch up. 
So a lot of our smaller customers were doing things with, you know, emails and telephone calls and an Excel spreadsheet um, by using RESD, just like a hotel. You can take your bookings online, your customer details are stored, you can take payments online, and it manages your inventory. So if you're a yes. whale-watching boat, for example, you can upload that inventory of seats per cruise and sell from live inventory online. And then uh, you can also sell through third parties um, yeah. by connecting through RESD. Now, it's that travel industry, tours and activities, it's taken a, a hard-knocking COVID. Yes. But uh, again, because we focus on business-to-business -business software as a service revenue, um, the, the revenues held up remarkably strongly because people use us to, or to run their business and to get bookings. So unless they go out of business, they don't turn us off. If they don't turn us off, we keep collecting our monthly software fee. Lovely. And that's one that we expect is going to have a very big rebound. As a matter of fact, we're already seeing it. A little bit. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, some of, some of the listed travel stocks already are um, on the rise. Yeah. But travel is complicated because of, um, I mentioned SiteMinder. My first investment with Leon uh, was Hotel Club. I've just mentioned Resdy. We, we follow travel a fair bit. That's very mixed. The um, domestic is opening up much faster than international. Mm. And the um, sort of regional, rural, near big city is really strong in many countries, whereas businesses relying on business and international travel are very weak. Okay, so tell me this. How, how does a firm like EVP source deal flow? Where do you get the information from, where do you get the leads? How does that materialize for you and your co-workers? Look, I, I think just longevity in the market and developing a reputation are the key. We've been at it a long time. We, we're connected to all the sort of incubators, accelerators, co-working spaces. They know who we are, so we get invited along to all the pitch sessions, um, They'll tip us off if they, think that, if they think they've got a good one that fits our profile. Some of the best deal flow comes from uh, the founders of our existing companies. I mean, there's some that we've been working with, um, or SiteMinders, the oldest of them. I've been on that board for a dozen years. Um, but, yeah, we, we build relationships. And there's a network where founders and would-be founders talk to each other and get recommendations. Um, so our problem is not... It's not deal flow, and it hasn't been for years. The problem is how to sort it really efficiently mm. and find the right ones. We would probably get an average of 20 incoming um, funding inquiries a week. Okay. Yeah, that's way and too much. And what's, what's the process, Les, that uh, your firm uses to go through them? Can you pretty much tell straight away if it's one for you and then that would go to the next level or, like, how does it work? Yeah. Oh, look, sort of sort of typical or average. Out of 20, there are probably 10 you can chuck in the bin straight away because they're from... So we're structured as, and forgive me for the language, it's government um, it's legislated, we're an ESVC LP. Yes. We're registered with Oz Industry and, and the tax office so that our investors get a 10% tax rebate on what they invest. And note, people are confused. The rebate's worth twice as much as a deduction. 
Mm-hmm. It'll come off your assessable income. It comes off your tax. So you get a 10% tax rebate against your tax. And and this is the big sweetener, your profits are tax-free. There and you go. It's not discretionary. It's statutory. We're registered for that. But I mention it because the trade-off there is we basically can only invest in Australian companies. I'm oversimplifying, but basically we can only invest in Australian companies. And to the extent we're allowed to invest overseas, we've got a, we've got a couple in New Zealand. We stick to we stick to Australia or at the most New Zealand because we're very active investors. We we take board seats on every one, not 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 to be a, a shepherd for our investment, but because we really roll our sleeves up to help them grow. Okay. Sounds like a standard platitude. I can put flesh on the bones. So apart from having the board seat, we frequently end up designing the board pack or improving it. We regularly end up um, helping recruit C-suite executives and interview them. We regularly do introductions to um, specific consultants that they may need. So outsource bookkeeping or CFO services. HR firms that can actually cope with dealing with startups because you need a particular type of person to work in a startup, I think. Mm-hmm. So we're very, very active. So we stick local and we've got the legislative restrictions of an ESVCLP. So coming back to your question, out of 20, there might be 10 that are coming from all over the world, you know, US, yep. Europe, India. Yep. So yep. they're not appropriate. Out of the rest, the other 10, there might be only five or six that fit that B2B SaaS, there may be out of the 22 or three that are... That you say, hang on, this one looks all right. Let's let's uh, dive a bit further into this. Yeah, yeah, right right geography, doing something we like and understand, um, and then we go deeper. We, we, you know, we look at their pitch decks, we meet with the founders several times, and if it starts getting serious, we, as I say, we talk to their, uh, talk to their customers, talk to their other investors, maybe meet the other senior staff. Um, yeah, we, we take it very seriously because it's not like buying BHP shares. We, we see it as more of a marriage. We're going to have to live with these people and work with these people for seven to ten years. And we want to like each other. You've got to get along. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you like to see in a founder? In your view, what makes a good founder, uh, irrespective of the business they're in? Look, there's the, the, the obvious stuff, you know, highly motivated, hardworking, intelligent, creative. I've got another prism on it, which is a set of personal prejudices gained from experience. Um, if I, I tend to put founders into three buckets. And you can get good ones in every bucket, but my favourite bucket is founders who are industry insiders that had to um, develop their own software to solve some problem. They're my favourite because then you know by definition they really know the industry, they really know the product, they know there wasn't a solution out there because they would have bought it if there was. Um, so they're my favourite sorts of founder. Next favourite are tech people. They're often people that you know, work for someone else and said, geez, I helped make them rich, but I did all the work. I wrote it. So they, <laughs> they, they, they then you know, will try to start up their own shop and then – the third category of my least favourite, although you still get some good ones, and that's founders who come from a financial or general consulting background who say, geez, you can make a lot of money by founding something. Let me find a problem to solve and let me find a tech person and I'll start a business. Yep. 
Now, they're the three categories in, in the order I prefer them, but you get good ones in each type. Have you ever had a situation, and, and no names required here, where you've loved the business, loved the industry, loved the market opportunity, but the founder, for whatever reason, was not quite right, and you wanted to invest, or you did invest, but you had to make some hard decisions around the leadership team? Look, founder, our assessment of founder capability and personality uh, are absolutely central um, because ultimately, how can I put it, there's two parts to it. There's entering the right race and then there's betting on the right horse. Mm. Entering the right race is high-level strategic. So, for example, in fund number three, our first investment has been in a telemedicine business. Absolutely yep. love the sector. Wish we could have got in pre-COVID, but we, we're certain it's the right race and for the long term, even when Medicare reverts and so forth. Yes. Um, so it's easy to be certain it's the right case. We've all got a, a reasonably clear picture of the future two, three, five years out. Harder to pick the right horse, and there's no point betting in the right race on the wrong horse. So founder capability and personality are critical. Um, another thing we, we, we actually are, we'll try to identify is founders who have a phrase, I don't know if we coined it, but we use not invented here syndrome. Where <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. You, well, you, there, there are people who are, and they might be, turn out to be very good founders, but by personality, they're very opinionated and don't hear very well. It's got mm. to be their idea. And those people are just harder to help. So we really, amongst other traits, prefer, look for founders who are good listeners and open to help because then we can do more. And we do see it as a partnership where we, as I say, we don't just come for the ride, we help to make it happen. But in order to be able to do that, you need a founder that can listen. So that's one of many variables. What is your advice, Les, to startup founders that are out potentially looking for VC money? They're not sure. They want to dip their toe in the water. They, need, they know they need funding, but they're not sure of the way to best go about raising money or talking with VCs? Are there any tips and tactics you can, you can give us to, to help out founders in the, in the race for, for early capital? Uh, look, there is a lot of help out there now. Things have changed massively from a decade ago. Um, there are organisations such as, uh, I'm a member of a thing called the Sydney Angels. There's another one called PIE. Um, and there are a number of you know, incubators and accelerators. So if you're doing it for the first time, and especially if you're youngish, you know, 20s, early 30s, um, get involved with one of those organisations and you'll, you'll get a million dollars worth of informal education just by watching other people do it, as well as um, specific tips and advice. Um, and I guess one further thing that I find really interesting uh, if you are going to go out pitching, for God's sake, practice. Do it two, three, four, five, six times. Do it in front of friends and family. Videotape yourself so you can see it. Because, yes. you know, pe people learn to be salespeople. And they get courses. And yet founders regularly go out and pitch for, you know, they'll come and talk to you. They're looking for $5 million. <laughs> they haven't put an hour of effort into understanding what they look like mm. when they're pitching. 
So practice. Practice makes perfect. Yeah. Now, how um, what what are your what are your observations on how uh, the COVID nineteen outbreak has affected um, if if we look at Australia, uh, the the VC market, startup industry, scale up industry in Australia. What are what are your general thoughts and observations? Look, the there is a lot of confusion and a lot of contradictory messages from the markets. And, and therefore, you know, all sorts of reactions from people. We are, I mean, look at it this way. What, are we crazy trying to raise a VC fund at this time? And I think the answer is there's probably, well, I say never, certainly for decades, not been a better time. The best buying happens, you know, when everyone is selling. So there has been a degree of drying up of capital in Australia at the seed and A round level. Mm. And conversely, there's a lot of capital still in the States and to some extent in Australia once you get that sort of B and C round. So I think what's happening is to some extent uh, the big super funds and instos are putting money into the larger VC funds, the sort of series B and C. Um, But the early stage stuff has gone the other way. The high wealth individuals uh, you know, licking their wounds, confused. What's the stock market doing? It went way down. It went way up. My property, my tenants have stopped paying rent. So, <laughs> yeah. So we, we think things are, or well, conditions are pretty good in the sector of the market that we work in. Comment A. Comment B, big crises, wars, famines, floods, accelerate change. They accelerate the adoption of technology. And that's what we invest in. So the majority of our businesses are doing materially better than they were pre-COVID. Yes. And for those that aren't, like I mentioned before, Resby, which um, is the software for current activity providers, even those that aren't, we're very, very confident um, are going to come out of this well because unless those businesses go out of business altogether, so no more theme parks, no more bridge climbs, Unless they get a business altogether, the impact of COVID is going to be they've got to run more efficiently. They've got to get more customers as they try to recover. They've got to be able to take bookings online and take payment online and so forth. Um, so the, soft, the software will do better and the legacy systems and businesses will do worse. So it's, if you like, a bit like saying, would you rather invest in coal or solar? Um, Investing in software, and especially software that businesses require to function more efficiently and profitably, I think COVID is is a real boon. It accelerates the adoption. So we're very, very comfortable raising our third fund now. And the reaction from investors has been mixed. There are some that have gone to grounds and basically are saying, I'm too scared and confused. Mm. Overall, uh, we're managing to raise our money uh, faster and more easily than we had anticipated and we expect to be closed before Christmas. So, right. And what's the, yeah. um, what's with respect to your third fund, what's the minimum uh, investment required? Minimum investment is $200,000, but you don't have to put that up front. We would expect to call that money in tranches over about four years. Okay. Yeah, we, we don't take your money and sit on it in a bank account earning 
0.1%. We, we call it as we need it for investments. So, so rough, very roughly 20 to 30% per annum over four years. And um, what's the expected return, if you can sort of crystal ball it? What, um, how does that work? Yeah, look, we're, we're targeting a minimum 25% compound return on funds, which is a you know, fairly, fairly steep hurdle in, in an environment where interest rates are sub 1%. But that, that's the trade-off for taking some risk, and there was always some risk, and you've got no liquidity, your funds are tied up for 7 to 10 years, but so far, Fund 1 and Fund 2, we're, we're on track uh, to achieve and indeed outperform that 25% hurdle. So, again, no one's got a crystal ball, but we're very happy with how things are going and have the confidence to um, put that out there, that that's what we hope to and expect to achieve. Well, we wish you all the best uh, with uh, Fund Number 3 and, in fact, uh, the first two as well and all of your portfolio companies. Les Zeckley from EVP, the chairman and uh, veteran VC. Thanks very much for joining us on VC land today. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Les.